If you will, take out your copy of God's Word. We're going to find ourselves in Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through chapter 6, verse 12. We're going to cover a good bit of ground today uh, as we continue in our series looking at Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. And uh, in as much as, you know, we, we can all... Many of us, I can't say we all, because uh, some of you have, have not been able to have the, the experience that I'm grateful and thankful that I have had, um, but many of us have had a good experience with our fathers, our earthly fathers. And um, if you don't have that, I uh, pray that you'll find that, uh, number one, that good father in Jesus Christ, but also pray that somewhere along the way you'll find that man that will be a mentor, father figure to you, because uh, every individual, every teenager, every boy and girl needs that father figure in their life. Today we find ourselves in Hebrews chapter 5, beginning there in verse 12 and going through chapter 6 verse 12. I've entitled this, Jesus' salvation is greater than our experiences. Jesus' salvation is greater than experiences. And there is a lot in this text. Really and truly it probably could have been two to three sermons. Um, but uh, I think we can get to where I want to get to today because I really want to get to Jesus. I really want to get to Jesus today. And uh, so if you will, find your, find your place there and we will begin in just a moment. When, I, when, I, when we start this, one thing that we need to understand, I did not include verse 11 uh, in this text. We kind of nailed that down last week when we finished up talking about Melchizedek, uh, but this week... Uh, we start off there in verse 12, but there's a reason why verse 12 all the way down to the end of 6.12 is written. It's because people have become dull of hearing. People have become dull of hearing. And the author tells them, he says, you become dull of hearing. If you look there in verse 11, it says, of whom we have much to say, talking about Melchizedek and about Jesus Christ more than even Melchizedek, we have much more to say. And it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. You become dull of hearing. Sometimes we hear something so often that we become dull of hearing it. It's Father's Day. You all agree? <laughs> I'm sorry, I just missed it. It's a father's joke, okay? Uh, anyway, uh, many of you have heard so many sermons. Many of you have heard so many sermons. Many a times a pastor can find his one particular soapbox and stand on it almost every single week. And uh, you become dull. It creates a dull ear for the hearer. When a pastor just goes to their same soapbox over and over and over again. And you're just like, man, I, I wish you could move on. You know, there's more topics in the Bible than just that. Uh, and that can create a, someone to be dull of ear. And sometimes the pastor preaches the gospel and people become dull because their faith has become numb. There's both sides of that coin, you know. Uh, so we need to make sure that we are not dull of hearing. We must be active believers and not inactive deceivers. That's what we need to be. We need to be active believers and not inactive deceivers. And today we'll look at a text It's very complicated and has been interpreted quite differently over the years by respected people. Respected uh, commentators, preachers, theologians, they look at it different. So today you're going to hear what I feel like the Bible is saying to us, to me. And if you disagree, that's okay because it's, it's, it's complicated. It's a little bit complicated text. 
So if you'll find your way there to chapter 5, we're going to read, and I'm just going to read in the portions as I get to them, because it's a lot of scripture, okay? So we find ourselves there in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, and I've entitled this, You Aren't Where You Should Be. You aren't where you should be. Why is that? Because you're dull of hearing. You're dull of hearing. You and I, these people that the author of Hebrews is writing to, they are not where they should be. So let's read there. Verse 12, it reads like this. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. You aren't where you should be. You become dull of hearing. This, this should not be named of us. The author is really, call, he calls on the people he calls the people on their lack of discipleship and leadership. You're not growing. You're not growing. You've got to grow in your faith. They were not growing in their faith, but rather they had become complacent with just experiencing the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. There's things we experience in life, but we're really not a part of it, right? You ever been in the presence of something? Somebody's experienced something. You were in the room. You experienced them experiencing it, but you really didn't take part in that. You wish you had. You look on it wishing you had, but you have not. You've looked on it. We'll look at the challenge of just experiencing the Holy Spirit without being filled by the Holy Spirit. You can experience the Holy Spirit without being filled by the Holy Spirit. Now, right now, let me say this. There are no two fillings. There are no two fillings of the Holy Spirit. But there's one filling of the Holy Spirit. There's one filling of the Holy Spirit. So when you have been regenerated and filled by the Holy Spirit, growth will be inevitable. So if you say, I'm not growing in my faith, you might want to, you might want to recollect, you might want to go back to the time. Did I receive Christ? Did I confess Him as Lord? Or did I just do what so many people over the years have said? Just accept Jesus as Savior. Unbiblical. You got to confess him as Lord, and then he will be your Savior. Because you know what happens when a Lord does? A Lord has control over your life, and he can save you from the things that you want so bad. You want sin? The Lord says, No, that's not what you want. That's not good for you. And he saves you from it time and time again. But if he's just a Savior, you can come and go as you think you can. You think you can do whatever you want to, and it's all up to you you got to confess Him as Lord. So when you've been regenerated and filled by the Holy Spirit, growth will be inevitable. It's going to come. You'll grow. You'll have growth in prayer. Your prayer life, you'll grow in prayer. You'll, you'll be like, man, I, I, just, I just find myself with everything that happens. The next thing I find myself is on my knees. Or I find myself just in prayer, talking to the Lord as I'm walking about my day, as I'm going through. You're finding yourself growing because the Holy Spirit is living within you. You didn't just experience Him. You've got a relationship with Him, and He's living in you. And so you're growing. You're growing in your prayer life. You're growing in your Bible intake. No longer is Bible boring. 
No longer is Bible, oh, I got to do it. Oh, I got to take my Bible to church. Oh, I don't even know where my Bible's at. Man, when, when you're growing and you've been filled by the Holy Spirit, you know where your Bible's at because you just use it pretty recently. You know where your Bible's at because you're reading it. You know where your Bible's at because that's where Jesus tells you who you are in Him or who you are apart from Him, and He tells you how to be like Him. And you want to be more like Him. So you're growing in your Bible intake. You're growing in discipling or in discipleship, however you want to say that. You're saying, I want to be more like Jesus. So I want to be in, in more avenues and more places where I can grow to be more like Jesus. So that I can tell more people about Him. So that I don't ignorantly say something that I don't know. You want to you be growing in your discipleship and your discipling. And inevitably, I feel like, for most people, now everybody's not called to teach the Word of God. But everybody in some way is teaching the Word of God by the way you're living. You're teaching the Bible. You're teaching it inaccurately or you're teacher, teaching it accurately. One of the ways. So if you're growing in prayer, you're growing in Bible intake, and you're growing in discipleship, you should be growing in your teaching. Now granted, there's some people called to teach, Sunday school teachers and preachers and, and all the varieties of ways. And we're going to be held to a higher, higher standard, accountability, than others. But every one of us are teaching somebody something about Jesus by the way we live. So we need to be growing in that way as well. And we need to move from the milk to the meat. And meat doesn't mean full age as of you're 30 years old or 40 years old or 50 plus, but rather maturity in the word and devotion. I've seen people that are uh, up in age. Man, they're very mature. They've read the Bible. They've been committed. They've grown in all these areas I just mentioned, and they're mature. I've seen people that are older in age that are very immature. I've seen people that receive Christ later in life. So they're babes in Christ. Doesn't mean that they're not wanting to grow. They just haven't started that process yet of being sanctified and all that kind of stuff being set apart. They haven't gotten that point yet. And then there's some, there's some young people that are growing and they're maturing and they're understanding. Now, they're not going to become fully matured, obviously, because they're young. And I'm, you know, I'm middle-aged now. I can say that proudly. Um, I'm a middle-aged man. And, and uh, I've still got room to grow. I still got room to grow. And I mean, anybody who says they don't, then uh, you need to check your pride at the door. Because we all have room to grow. All have room to grow. And what this really means is this means having grown to discern between the things of God and the things of the world. Discern between good and evil. And many today do not have this maturity. And it's because of a lack of devotion to growth in Bible intake, prayer, personal discipline, and teaching. I mean, it says it right there at the latter part of verse 14. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use, they've used these things, have their senses exercised, just like I've talked about. Um, everybody's got muscles on them, but some are a whole lot more developed than others, right? Right? Well, that's because some people choose to work them out. And, and if you want to be mature and you want to have that ability to discern between the good and the evil, you need to exercise that faith muscle. You need to exercise your prayer life. You need to exercise your Bible intake. You need to exercise your discipleship. And then eventually you need to exercise that teaching. 
And then that's going to grow. And it's not to make you look so great, but it's to bring glory to God. So you need that exercise so you can be able to discern both good and evil. Not so that you can go look at me. It's so you can say, God, help me choose for me what is best according to your word and to your will so that I may be able to lead people more accurately to you. So that's the first thing. We're not where we should be. Secondly, we're not wasting time on things you should already know. We're not wasting time on things you already know. Look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 6. Chapter 6 says, Therefore, leaving the discussion of elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptism, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Okay? So we're not wasting time on things you should know. Guys, we can't keep backtracking. We got to move forward. And so many times, I mean, now don't get me wrong, I believe that every church should have a new believers class. I really believe that. And sometime in the near future, I'd love to implement that here. Because you've got babes in Christ that have no idea. I mean, I preach big words. I don't know if y'all remember me preaching that series, big words. Preached on justification, sanctification, and, and a bunch of big words with Asian at the end of it. And, and, and like you, you may have been like, I, wow, that's regeneration. You know, you're like, wow, I don't even know what all that means. Well, that should be taught in the new believers class. And he said, where does that come from? Goodness gracious. Well, we, we've got to, we got to move on. We've got to be able to teach people greater. And, and once you've got a head knowledge, you've got to put a foot knowledge to that thing and put it into action. You've got to put it into action. So he wants us to, he's not saying leave it as in is, has no value. What he's saying is, is you need to know these things. These need to be the foundations on which you build from. We need to build on these things. Leaving this discussion. So as we look at this, let us go on. It says there in verse six, chapter 6 verse 1. Let us go on to perfection. There's a beginning point, And that beginning point is the foundation. It says, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of faith toward God and of the doctrine of baptisms. That's plural. And I'm going to talk to you why that has an S on there in just a minute. But the first two teachings are regarding conversion. These first two are regarding conversion. And that's the repentance from dead works and faith to God. We need to move on from these things. Not that we need to just... It doesn't mean abandon. It means it's a core thing. We should be solid in it. There shouldn't be arguments. We shouldn't have to reteach it. You should know this stuff. This repentance from dead works, what this means, Homer A. Kent wrote in his commentary, he said, in the gospel... The sinner learns that all his efforts to please God are merely dead works. And his only hope for salvation is a complete reversal of attitude. So when we understand that, that's, it's not about our works, you know, that brings salvation. Dead works. What brings repentance is a realization through the working of the Holy Spirit within us who Jesus Christ is and who we are in light of who he is. We are sinners, we are enemies, we are dead. But through the, the work of the Holy Spirit of drawing us to the Son 
And through us confessing Jesus Christ, we see that He is the way, the truth, and the life. We see that. We see where Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel. Repentance is a big part of salvation. It's a vital part of salvation. And then we go through Jesus, who is the door, and He says at the end of John 14, 6, no man comes to the Father except through Me. And then you come to the Father. And you come to the Father through Jesus because He shed His blood and his blood is applied to your account so now his righteousness is applied to your account so you could stand boldly before the throne of God and talk to him that's how that works that's how that works and it works through Jesus not you or I it's not through us it's through Jesus so we don't Conversion, repentance from dead works. We've got to move on. We've got to move on from faith to God, faith to God. And you may say, well, how do you move on? I mean, faith is ongoing. Yes, we understand that. But he's talking about just understanding that, like, say from Ephesians 2.8, where Paul says, for it is by grace through faith that you are saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. You've got to understand, salvation is not a work-based issue, unless you're talking about what Jesus did in his works. But it's not your works. It's about his works. So it's faith. And uh, Kent also wrote this in his commentary. He said, one must cease trusting his or her own righteousness, which is no righteousness at all, and must cast himself upon the mercy of God, receiving by faith the gift of salvation in Christ. It is this that transforms him from one dead in sins to one born again as a babe in Christ. And that's how that works. So those first two things that he's talking about that we've got to uh, let us go on from is repentance from dead works and faith to God. And that is in, regard, in, uh, in regarding to conversion. The next two that he says we need to move on from are ordinances or ceremonies. Ordinances or ceremonies. It doesn't mean that you don't do these anymore. You just need to understand what they're there for and the purpose of them. And, and that's the reason why when we come to it and we observe the Lord's Supper. We do the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. We do the ordinance of baptism. We continue to do those things. Those are the two ordinances that we still hold within the church that Jesus said for us to continue to do. So as we look at that, these two that he talks about is the doctrine of baptisms. There's an S on the end of that word. And let me explain to you as, uh, as Kent goes on to say, I read a lot of his commentary. He was really good. So I stayed with him a good bit with, as my reading went on. He wrote that Jewish doctrine alone is in view. He's not really talking about how we view baptism today, although that can be understood as well. But Jewish doctrine alone is in view, inasmuch as the term washings or baptisms, and I, I mean, I would love to tell you that I'm a super intelligent guy, and I know all these old, these words that are written in Aramaic and Greek. Now, you know, it ain't going to do you a whole lot of good for, for me to confuse you. So let me just say this. These smart fellas tell you that there's two different words that are used, okay? And when they talk about Christian baptism, the word that's used in the original language is not this. It was the, what was used in the Old Testament by the Jewish people. More, more talking about washings than a baptism, one-time kind of deal, okay? Just wanted to tell you that, all right? Because as I was reading that, I thought, gosh, that's kind of convoluted and confusing, and I've only got like 30 minutes, and I'm going to preach 40 minutes, but... I've only got 30 minutes, so anyway. <laughs> I, can't, I can't add all that extra fluff. But anyway, this is particularly to Jewish converts, those that are coming out of 
Judaism and becoming Christians. So it's written to them, this is particularly to Jewish converts, about the distinctions among the various washings in Judaism compared to Christian baptism. And he's telling them that. He's trying to tell them, we've got to move on. We've got to move on from what you knew in the washings as a Jewish person and how you did all that to what we know of baptism as of today. And as Baptists, we believe that baptism follows salvation. And that baptism is symbolic of the life, death, and resurrection that has occurred to the one who has confessed Christ as Lord in faith by grace. That's how we view baptism. The, the second part of those ceremonies is the laying on of hands. It, and uh, this was a practice sometimes associated with the initiatory rite of water baptism among Christians. And also, it seems also to have symbolized the imparting of the Holy Spirit. And the filling of the Holy Spirit comes with a regenerated heart because no one will be able to live a holy, Christ-like life without the counseling, comforting, and sealing of the Holy Spirit. It's impossible to do that. So we've got to have the Holy Spirit indwelling us to live that Christ-like life. The last two doctrines that are mentioned are in eschatological truth. That's a big old word. I wrote it out. I hyphenated it, okay? Just so you know, uh, I did that for my own <laughs> eschatological. Okay, that's a big word. All right, which means uh, end times kind of associations there. Okay, so the resurrection of the dead. He talks about the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And just as Christ was the firstborn of the dead, we too will follow in his example regarding a bodily resurrection. And all those who have confessed Jesus as Lord will surely rise from a mortal death to immortality and be clothed with immortality. Scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 53, For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality. Death is swallowed up in victory. And that's how that works, the resurrection of the dead. And then as far as eternal judgment goes, the second half of those eschatological doctrines, I'm going to say that one more time just for fun, uh, eternal judgment. William Barclay wrote this in his commentary. He says of eternal judgment in this consideration that Christianity was from the beginning a religion of judgment. No Christian was ever allowed to forget that in the end, he must face God. And that what God thought of him was infinitely more important than what man thought of him. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, it says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we receive Christ, when we stand before that judgment, we can be confident in knowing Jesus stands as our victor. He is the victor, and we stand in his victory. And so we don't have to worry about eternal judgment, and we can let us go on. Let us go on. Now, point number three, which is probably one of the most hotly contested passages of scriptures, and, and I listened to several sermons, read over several commentaries in this, so this is the one that I feel like most accurately grasped this text. So let's look at verses 4 through 6 of Hebrews chapter 6. It says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God, and to put him to an open shame. Now I'm going to tell you something. This, this scripture right here is a scripture that is hotly debated in a lot of different areas. I'm telling you, 
I did a lot of listening and a lot of reading this week, and I think this comes up uh, as the, most, the, the best way to understand that. You noticed a minute ago, I talked about how someone can experience the Holy Spirit within a room. You could be in the room and you could say you experienced it as well. But yet you really didn't experience the Holy Spirit in your own life. You saw it. You were close to it. But you did not receive the Holy Spirit. Just keep that in mind. There is a group of people who have received, as we look at this, there is a group of people who have received spiritual blessings and high spiritual experiences. There are people like that. There's four experiences of spiritual blessings or high spiritual experiences that are listed in this text, this short little group of Scripture right here, four through six, okay? The first one is enlightenment. It's enlightenment. Their minds have been enlightened to the things of Christ. Truth has come into their lives and a level of understanding has come. That could come. You can sit in a service every single week and you can get enlightened. You, you, can, you can have, you can see that. You can be like, man, I see that now. That makes sense. Especially if you have a, a preacher or in Sunday school, you got a teacher who can accurately, rightly divide the Word of God. You, you can do that. You can be enlightened to the Word of God. But not be saved. That can happen. There's also the participation of the Holy Spirit. You may say, now hold on now. This is where you got to pump the brakes, Pastor. Hang on now. Let hear me out. All right? These people have tasted the Holy Spirit through conviction of sin. I'm going to tell you something. You don't come to Jesus unless you realize that you need Jesus, right? There's plenty of people who have experienced the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, and they have refused salvation. The Holy Spirit has been in them, on them, and they're like, no, I can't do that. You've heard of people holding the pews, white-knuckling it. The Holy Spirit's working on them. They've tasted, they've, been, they've partaken, but yet there's not salvation. Conviction of sin is a work of the Holy Spirit. And not salvation in all instances. So one can participate in the Holy Spirit but be lost. Now you may say, where do you, where do you get this idea, Brother Blake? Where do you get that idea? Let's look at Romans 10. Romans 10, 8. What does it say? It says the word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Now I quote verse 9 and 10 almost every Sunday, don't I? It's getting put in you. The Holy Spirit can be convicting you. The Word of God, you can be enlightened to it. It can be all in you. It's in your mouth. The Scripture says it's in your mouth and in your heart. The Holy Spirit can be that close to you. And you refuse the Holy Spirit. You can do it. Because if you don't refuse it, then you do what's next in verse 9 and 10. That you, it says, let me read that whole verse together. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you will, if you will confess, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But what if you don't? The Holy Spirit has been working on you. You have tasted it. You've seen, I am lost. And you say, I'm, I'm happy in my lostness. I'm not ready to be saved yet. I'm not ready to be saved yet. 
You better be careful. You've been influenced by the Word of God. You've tasted the good Word of God is what the Scripture says there in verse 5. You've tasted the good Word of God. It's through preaching in any church that has healthy contextual preaching. You've tasted it. You've been in a Sunday school with a good Sunday school teacher. You've been in your home life. Maybe your mother, your father has raised you up teaching you the Word of God. You have been influenced by the Word of God and still not changed by the grace of God. Still not changed by the grace of God. I think about the rich young ruler. He must have been raised pretty good, right? He came in there, he knew all the laws. He said, I've kept all the laws since I was a youth. And Jesus says, okay, well, good deal then. Go sell all you got and come follow me. Ooh, can't do that. You know why? Because he had had good teaching. He had had good, good teaching. He had followed the rules, supposedly. And then he leaves out. And he can't do in his heart what only someone who's been saved by the grace of God can do. Because he was not saved. It was close to him. Boy, it was, it was right there. There's the power of the age to come. And the powers of the age to come, that's miracles or signs and wonders. If you look back over into Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, just a couple of pages back in your Bible, depending on how big it is. Uh, <laughs> Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. It says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. There are those who have seen and experienced the power of the age to come. They've seen those miracles and signs and wonders. There are those that will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do signs and wonders in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And what's he going to say to them? Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. They are so close. But their heart, their heart had not been changed, had not been regenerated through true repentance. So secondly, this person, this group has fallen away. And in doing so, they've crucified the Son of God, bringing public shame. We see that in verses, uh, in, in that latter part in verse 6. Two ways people crucified Jesus. Jesus died to make us holy. It tells us, if you flip over a few pages in chapter 13, verse 12, it tells us how Jesus suffered outside the gate. So to sanctify the people by his blood. When you disregard the Holy Spirit and embrace the world, you're re-crucifying Christ. This is the first way someone re-crucifies Christ. Secondly, when you turn away from God's family to the world, you've made it known that Jesus' sacrifice is less valuable than the offerings of the world. You say Jesus' sacrifice is less valuable than the offerings of the world. And everything that is holy of Christ, you are saying does not wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, fill you, nor is worthy to be leading Lord of your life. One great quote by Brendan Manning I've heard in the past goes like this. He said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. 
That's someone who is so close. They've sat on a pew. They've, at one time in their life, they prayed a prayer and said, I believe in Jesus, and nothing changed in their life. Nothing. Guys, that's not salvation. Salvation is a regenerated heart that day after day realizes how lost I am without Jesus. And praise God how good it is that He has saved me by His grace. And not goes, well, you know what? I just did it again or whatever, you know. And, and just, just goes about their happy way. You, no, it should, it should break our hearts. And I think that's the biggest problem in churches today. There's no heartbreak. There's no burden over your own and my own sins. And we just say, so what? I'm human. Well, how about this? So what? Are you saved by the grace of God? Is it sacrifice? Are you re-crucifying Christ? Just saying, so what? I'm going to go do this, and I'm going to go do that, and I'm going to willingly choose to do things that dishonor and trample over the blood of Jesus Christ? We do it. Every one of us. And we're not broken over our sin, and we just say, well, you know what? I'm, I'm human. I'm sick of that. Sick of that. Quit saying you're just human. I say by the grace of God, I'm a, I'm a saint. I'm saved. I'm still going to sin. But praise God, I've got, a, I've got an advocate that I can go to. And he says, he, he, he isn't like holding it over my head because he's already held it on the cross. And so I don't need him to do that. All I need him to do is say, Blake, you are confessing it to me. You are convicted by your actions. And I, because of this, I see that and you are forgiven. It's been forgiven. And you just need to be reminded of that. And you need to know, in that reminder, you need to know how much it cost me. I think that's the biggest problem. When we go to pray confessions, we don't remember how much it cost Christ. We just think about how much it's costing us that we got caught. I think that's one of the big problems. Thirdly, here's, here's, here's a big thought. Boy, and I am way over time. I got a lot more to go. The last two points move through pretty quick, okay? So if you'll hang in there for this one last little bit, we'll be good. Thirdly, therefore, it's impossible for that person to repent. Now, this does not mean that repentance is not received by Christ. Christ is always willing and ready for anybody to repent. But that one that is moving away from God is dull in their hearing and not studying or retaining the basic or elementary principles of God has revealed a value of worldliness over Christ's sacrifice. That has revealed a value of worldliness over Christ's sacrifice. Scripture tells us it is, it tells us all about God's desire for all to repent. It tells us that in 2 Peter 3 9. It says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God still, it, he desires everyone to repent. That was Jesus' first sermon in Mark 1.15. Repent and believe the gospel. But listen, we have this account and it's, and it's modeled through the life of Esau about this true repentance. We find that uh, in Hebrews 12, 12 through 17. 
It says, strengthen the hands that hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will please the Lord, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau." who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. All the blessings of God poured down on Esau. All the blessings of God poured down on Esau. But from the blessings came thorns and briars in his life. A lack of true repentance marred his life, and he was rejected for his lack of repentance. Repentance is the core. I'm telling you, repentance is the core of salvation. Obviously, Jesus is the way of salvation. But for the believer, we've got to repent. We, we can't just be satisfied with the, the whole phrase of, I'm just a human. We've got to repent. And repentance is not a one-time deal. It's an ongoing thing day after day. We've got to repent. Jesus preached in Mark 1, 15. He said, repent and believe the gospel. Listen, repentance is not a created legalistic need of the modern church, but rather a lordship acceptance of the regenerate believer. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. The fields are contrasted. The fields are contrasted. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it, and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessings from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Near to being cursed. That's, that's kind of an important part also that I think you need to see. As I quoted from Second Peter, it's God's desire that all repent. It's close to being cursed. There's still a little bit of hope because Jesus still holds out that hope. But listen, there's the retaining fields and there are the rejected fields. There's the retaining fields and the rejected fields. The ground is the people. The ground is the people. And the first part talks about the people who receive it. The rain is all these things we've addressed in the previous verses. The enlightenment, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, the miracles and wonders. That's the rain that's come on it. And that's the people. And the ground retains the nourishment and it produces fruit. Things good for God, themselves, and for others. That's the retaining fields. And then there's the rejected fields. This is the ground that has experienced or tasted. This is those type people. They've been real close. It's been in their mouth. It's been in their heart. But they've rejected. It's like the rich young ruler. That's what it's talking about. These are the folks. The rain is the same things as the previous verse. The enlightenment, Holy Spirit, word, miracles and wonder. But this ground does not produce the things of nourishment nor the fruit of the Spirit because they have not surrendered to the Spirit. So this ground produces thorns and briars. How do you know a believer? It's called the fruit of the Spirit, right? Galatians chapter 5. You're going to be producing things that honor God, that blesses others. And reveals a life that's been changed by the grace of God. If not, you're going to be producing briars and thorns. Now listen, I don't want to end right there. This last part, verse 9 through 12. I've entitled this, A Pastor's Hope for His People. Whew, this is where I wanted to get to. 
I know you're probably thinking, man, you want to get through all that. I did want to get through all that, but I really wanted to get here today. This is a pastor's hope. And if a pastor don't have this hope for his people, he's got, he's got a poor hope. This is my hope for you. This is my hope for anybody who comes to this church. Read there in verse 9 through 12. It says, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. This is a pastor's hope for his people. I want better things for you. I don't want you to be dull of hearing. I don't want you to be people that I have to go back to elementary teachings. I don't want to be people that goes, how are they going to receive it? Are they going to produce fruit? Are they going to produce thorns and briars? I want you, and I want this, I want better things concerning us. It's a pastor's hope for his people. He said, things that accompany salvation. Though we speak in this manner, he's talking about, look, I've, I've chastised you. I've told you straight up. I've told you all the issues. I've told you where you've been. I've told you you've been dull of hearing. Wake up, open your ears, and receive the implanted word of God. Listen, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. That you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That's a pastor's hope for his people. I want to tell you, that's, that's my message for you. My message for you is the same exact message as the author of Hebrews was his audience. I am confident of better things for you. Better things for you. Things that accompany salvation. In verse 10, it tells us God's approving eye. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love. God's got an approving eye. I pray that we are serving Him faithfully. We're producing fruit consistently. Where God says, that's good. I like these people. I like this church body. I like that because they're producing the fruit that brings righteousness and shows the glory of God. That's what I want to see for our people. That's a pastor's hope for his people. And then I want to see a diligent life. You see that in verse 11 and 12. And we desire that each one of you, each one of you. So obviously he's writing to a church full of individual people. And he says, each one of you to show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. Boy, there's a lot of good stuff in that. And I, I ain't got a whole lot of time to do it. But I'll say you this. As your pastor, I desire, to you, I desire you to diligently pursue the Lord in your life until it is time to go home to be with the Lord. When you, we are not to coast, but we are to boast in the Lord. We are not to stagnate in the potholes of life, but regenerate in the pool of the blood of Christ. We are not to be dim in our learning, but devoted in our listening. We are not to be hidden from the world, but be hurting for the world. We are not to be sheltered in our sanctuaries, but shouting for a Savior who saves. That will be an active faith. That will be a diligent faith. That will be a realization of the joy of your salvation. That's what it'll be. So who's with me? Who's with me? Men, are you with me? Fathers, are you with me? Yeah, let's do this. Mothers, women, are you with me? Come on, teenagers, you with me? Come on, let's, let's be diligent to live a diligent life that brings honor and glory to God. Children, are there any children in here? Listen, are you with me? All right, good deal. I heard a yell over there. 
Listen, we've got to be about the work of the Lord. We've got to be telling people about Jesus. We've got to be living a life because Jesus' salvation is greater than experiences. Jesus' salvation is greater than experiences. I hope today that you know Jesus. You've not just experienced so many places today, and I use this language as well, so I'm not throwing shade on nobody, but I'm just saying, we need to do more than just experience Jesus. We got to know him. We got to know him. There's a lot of things I've experienced in life. There's one time I went out west. I don't know if I'll ever get back. I experienced the west, but I don't know the west. You know what I mean? I'm not John Wayne, but you know what? I've experienced it. But one day I pray, I'll go glory to glory and I'll know my Savior face to face.